Much have I traveled in the realms of gold, and many goodly states and kingdoms seen. Round many western islands have I been, which bards in fealty to Apollo hold. By John Keats, from On First Looking Into Chapman's Homer. Welcome to Epigraphs. I'm Ted. And I'm Maria. And we're sitting down today because we're going to talk about uh, epics. The, the epics. The epics. The epics. And uh, I, I love the epics. Uh, there's some of them that I haven't read that I will, I will publicly admit to not having read, but I have spent a lot of time with, with the epics. There are plenty that I haven't read, and uh, some I was realizing as I was thinking about this that I've read halfway through and then stopped. <laughs> <laughs> because we might as well get it out there. One of the things that makes something epic is that it's long. <laughs> yes, which we're going to also reference quite a bit um, C.S. Lewis's preface to paradise lost which i've read a long time ago and you've never read but it's still a fantastic book about epics and i think it's in that work that he talks about um people's diff- modern people's difficulty reading an epic and he he said he describes the experience which if you've ever been to a used bookstore and gone to the classic section you will almost certainly have experienced which is say you crack open a translation of the aeneid or a paradise lost and for the first 10 pages there's all sorts of underlining and like notes and oh that's great and something like that and then you keep reading and nothing else there's no other markings on the rest of the book (laughs) the point there being that epics are not something that is about pithy statements about the turn of phrase sure there's some of that but they're about they're they're enormous works that can't be cut down to some small piece so when i when i think of the epics and this is pulling from lewis's paradise lost the sort of the backbone. His preface to Paradise Lost. His preface right? to Paradise Lost. The backbone, which is a, is actually a book in its own right, which is pretty funny. It's not actually a preface to Paradise Lost. It's a whole book about epics and particularly about Paradise Lost. But the backbone of the Western canon in terms of the epics, he delineates as the two Homeric epics. So you have the Iliad and the Odyssey, which are, they're connected in their story. And those I have read. Those you have read. I haven't read the Iliad. So I've read the Odyssey a couple of times. I've tried the Iliad two, three times, and haven't, I just lost the thread every time. I think it's actually very common for modern readers to find the Odyssey much more compelling than the Iliad. Well, yeah, so the, actually, that's a great point. So but my, sorry, um, go ahead and so, say so the other So the Iliad ones. and the Odyssey, and then you have Virgil's The Aeneid, which, which I read, but not since college. <laughs> which that comes, that comes right before the time of Christ, so it's actually quite, it's quite a bit later, and in a very different you know, context. And then even later than that, you have the Divine Comedy by Dante. So that's out of the classical world. Mm-hmm. Um, that's firmly planted in the early Renaissance. And then Paradise Lost, which is the only of the five that's actually even in English and can be read in the original language. But your point of... Well, if you're an English speaker if you're an English nothing speaker, else. <laughs> I, I do mean you. <laughs> you specifically and me. Um... I can I can sort of brutally walk my way through a little bit of the Italian in in, in Dante, but uh, the your point about the Odyssey was interesting because that was actually the first time that I realized that I could engage on my own with good literature. Mm. My freshman year of college, I think it was actually no, it was because I listened to Josh Garrel's "Love and War and the Sea in Between" album that fall, and he had a song called "Ulysses" about Odysseus, which I found very compelling, and I thought. 
I'd love to actually read the Odyssey. And I got halfway through it on my Kindle and realized that, lo and behold, I was reading an epic poem. It was a prose translation, but that aside, I was reading one of the epics for fun on my own and really enjoying it. Uh And that kind of turned this major switch in me that said, hey, this is like, you can do this. And not only can you do this, you want to do this. You want to read this stuff. And to your point about the Odyssey, what shocked me about it was it was not this boring, linear slog, but the storytelling in it is very interesting. There's lots of, where you start right in the middle of the action and then you get all this stuff backwards and you know you're hearing about the past and you're moving forward and so the structure is very non-linear it's actually you know what people now think they're you know in the last say 100 years of storytelling feel like they like invented like here are all these interesting ways to play with narrative and time and it's like well the odyssey did that just kind of as a side note i met a guy last summer so you know the odyssey is set up where you meet Odysseus in the middle of the action, yes. and most of what happens before that is actually Odysseus narrating it. Exactly. Well, we know from everything that happens after that point that Odysseus lies all the time. So his theory is we actually have no trustworthy information about what happened to Odysseus wow. before the beginning of the book, where it opens. Which I guess firmly plants the Odyssey as the first postmodern novel. <laughs> <laughs> with an unreliable narrator and a weird, broken-up, nonlinear story. That's that's fascinating. But let's uh, let's go back to some basics. So one of the things I was actually hoping we could talk about is what qualifies something as an epic. So I was thinking about it. There are those five core ones. No one's going to mm-hmm. dispute that those mm-hmm. are epics. But then you get these other things that are really long works. Sometimes they're telling stories, sometimes they're not, and they seem to tap into some of the same kinds of concerns as epics sometimes. So I've got things in mind like um, Idols of the King by Tennyson. I don't think that Uh counts, Uh but I'm not sure. Um, There's a novel, sorry, not a novel. It's a a travel book, basically, but it's enormous from the mid-1900s. It's called... Um, I always get it backwards. It's either Grey Lamb and Black Falcon or Black Lamb and Grey Falcon by Rebecca West. Yeah. And yeah. um, and she's traveling in the Balkans and it goes into the history of all these places that she's going. So it feels sort of like that origin story mm-hmm. that some of the epics have. Um, that's one of the ones that I'm only halfway through. <laughs> Well, and then, okay, and then the other big one, another one that I'm only halfway through, but I'm actually actively reading this one, is Augustine City of God, which... Um, oh, interesting. And Alan Jacobs has actually just started blogging his way a series on City of God, so a, a little okay. bit of this is okay. inspired by that. But he points out that Augustine very obviously positions himself in reference to the Aeneid. And yeah. he's offering a different account of where the world came from, basically, and where the world's going. But it's not a narrative. Yeah. Is it an epic? Uh, my, you know, again, I'm going to I'm gonna sort of pull the Barfield thing and say that um, no one who's really interested in definition looks in a, in a, in a dictionary. And so <laughs> I'm going to, I'm just going to, you know, maybe there's some academic definition of, of, of an epic out there. And yeah, fine. but neither of us know it. So neither of just... us know it. And I, I don't, in, in some sense, that doesn't matter. I think that, that you have 
you have what I would the noun right the epics, mm-hmm. and then you have epic writing. And so, for instance, the Lord of the Rings, I would consider that to be like an epic novel. Mm. And so there it goes from a, no- a noun to an ad- adjective because it has those epic qualities to it. Mm-hmm. But I would consider an epic to be a long form, cosmically, in some, in some way, cosmically involved narrative poem. Okay. So those, those would be the things that I would say for me to be convinced that it's an epic, it would need to be. Very, it needs to be very long. It needs to be a poem, so it needs to be at least originally told in verse, even if you're reading a prose translation. Of okay, it. so that immediately rules out City of God and Your, the Travel West. Yes, exactly. So, but I would add in Beowulf. Mm-hmm. Beowulf definitely, to me, to my mind, fits fits within firmly within the category of the epics. One that I think is really interesting. The only argument would be maybe for the length. I would consider the book of Job actually to be an epic poem. Hmm. And in that sense, it's a very interesting epic poem. Um, so let, let me, let me bring up a distinction that you and I were talking a little bit about that C.S. Lewis has in preface to paradise lost, which this is probably, if there's one thing that stuck in my mind when I read it 10 years ago, actually, this is the 10 year anniversary of the one time I read paradise <laughs> preface to paradise lost. So clearly some of this stuck stuff stuck in there, but he talks about the difference between the, two Homeric epics and um, there's a ter- corner that got turned at the Aeneid. And one of the things that's interesting about the Aeneid, I think you brought up that it's primary, he calls them the primary epics and the secondary epics. Mm-hmm. And that's and the primary epics are the Homeric epics. What's interesting is the Aeneid is structurally, the first half is basically the Odyssey told from the point of view of the Trojans rather than the Greeks. And the second half of it is the Iliad, but it's taking place on the peninsula of Italy instead mm-hmm. of outside of Troy. And so I think very shamelessly and intentionally, um, Virgil is taking the structure of the epics that he grew up under as a writer and turning them, he's transforming them into something that he wants to do with them, which you again see, especially with, right? Because then Virgil shows up as one of the main characters of the Divine Comedy. Yeah. And so what I understand the basic distinction there to be is that secondary epics are self-consciously being epics. So, yeah. So that's one part. Another, another distinction that Lewis brings up that I find deeply interesting in terms of, because of how deep it goes, is he's a, he talks about the Homeric epics as being a picture of a fundamentally cyclic universe. Mm-hmm. So the Trojan War is, is worthy of song because of the great deeds done, but Troy's burned to the ground. Everyone kind of goes their way, goes home, and you don't feel like the world has turned a corner. Great things have been done, but the gods, you know, used men as their proxies for a struggle like they always do, and Zeus is going to go on philandering. is going to go around pulling Zeus's hair, and, like, men are going to do glorious things and end up as ghosts in the underworld. And with the Odyssey, you know, Odysseus comes home and he drives the young suitors out of his house and peace is sort of reestablished. But it's very much like much a thing of glad we got through all that. So you know, business as usual can continue. I can grow old and venerable in my home. And actually, Odysseus's journey is not done at the end of the Odyssey. I don't know if you remember this, but he still has to continue on until he... He has to continue journeying until he reaches a place where they don't recognize yes. oars for what they are. Yes. So I think there's some speculation that maybe there was a third Homeric epic. Oh, interesting. I'd actually heard in relation to that, that add-on with the whole saga of the oar as his way of appeasing Neptune is something that was tacked on much later. Mm. 
because originally it was supposed to end. He's home. He's reestablished with Penelope um, and and his son. And that later on, for whatever reason, people thought, oh yeah, we need to add this other thing on at the end. <laughs> I don't, it, interesting. Yeah. Well, and, the, and you know that's that's one of the interesting things is that the um, the epics, especially my my impression of the the two Homeric epics is that they're they're enormous to the in in, in and they have kind of fuzzy edges. Mm-hmm. And so they and they and this is another thing that you immediately realize when you approach the epics is that they are an education in and of themselves. They both presuppose a tremendous amount of knowledge outside of them, and also educate you on a tremendous number of things. Mm-hmm. And so the, the of the of those five, the one that I've spent the most time with far and away is the Divine Comedy. And as anyone who's ever picked up the Divine Comedy will know that it is completely rife with classical references, biblical references, contemporary. Italian Renaissance references and Dante is bringing everything to bear on it. One of the best examples of that. I mean, the story itself is essentially told through people that he brings in. Mm -hmm. It's 100 cantos of cameos. Essentially know who they are from outside the poem or the poem doesn't make sense. Exactly. And so, so you have the, they're, they're interesting in that they're, they're really, really deeply embedded in the world. And particularly in the term that I that that I that I got from Jonathan Peugeot and Richard Rowland on on Jonathan Peugeot's podcast, the term of universal history, which is really, I think it sheds a lot of light on sort of the epic project. So particularly thinking about Dante. So okay, so let, let let's go back. I I I, I got to go back. I want to finish up the primary and secondary epic thing because this is really important. So the primary epics, the world is basically unchanged, even though men have done great deeds. Mm-hmm. In the secondary epics, something happens. The world is not the same because of the things that have happened in the story of the epic, which strikes me as kind of what people think epics are about now. And and so yes, when I when I had just heard the primary secondary distinction without that element of it, mm-hmm, just as the self consciousness, mm-hmm. and was thinking about Homeric versus Aeneid on the thing that I immediately thought was that the later the secondary epics feel like they are origin stories how yes. do we get where we are yes. instead of the sort of snapshot of a culture field that the the earlier epics have like this is the pinnacle of well it's not all the pinnacle but we are going to show you some of the best ways that people can live we're going to sing their glorious deeds and and you might be able to help me out on this i this this is one of those things i picked up ages ago but that the homeric epics were seen as I said as an education, but like really meant as an education. Like when you read the story, you know, this is how you slaughter bulls to the gods. This is how you're supposed to speak to a man. This is how a son treats a father. I have heard that. I okay. Yeah. I don't know where I picked that up either, but right. So let's, let's say there's an idea I floating around. our grandmother at told us that. Oh, fast. Okay. There you go. <laughs> that it, that, that it but really she was. she actually like taught. Taught we classics. Should, we yes. should clarify. She, yes. she taught the Iliad and the Odyssey to college students for years. Reliable source here. <laughs> Assuming it's her. Uh, we should ask her if we can formally cite her on that. But yeah, exactly. So so it was seen as as Greek to some on some level, like the encapsulation of Greek culture. If you read and understood this, you could be a Greek man. Mm-hmm. Which is a really interesting and so that but that's different from the Aeneid, which when you read it, it becomes immediately obvious this is about where the Romans came from. And not just where the Romans came from, but who the Romans are and who they're going to be. And so there's this... It it 
it adds a really interesting valence to it because I don't know. There's to at least to my mind, there's some ambiguity there in the Homeric epics in terms of you know, is it good that the Greeks are fighting with the Trojans? It feels largely tragic. Mm-hmm. You know, Odysseus is held up as he's an extraordinarily competent man. Is he a good man? Quite questionable. Yeah. Aeneas is much more. Aeneas is much more of a hero who has a. I, he is tragic because of the divine destiny from heaven placed on him. And so you have like the tragedy of Dido. But that's not because he's a bad man or because he's an incompetent man, but because like destiny has laid its hands on him. Why? Not because he needs to go and reduce something for his life, but because Zeus has ordained that a an eternal kingdom will be established in Rome. And so come hell or high water, Aeneas is going to go there. Mm-hmm. He's going to kill all the people. He's going to marry you know, this this Albion princess and establish the king the eternal kingdom of Rome. Yes, but wasn't it Jupiter that ordained all that? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so so what's interesting about that and, and, and Beowulf Beowulf also uh, Be- I mean Beowulf is a whole nother story on that. I what's interesting is that you very quickly get into all the nuance there. So so Paradise Lost fits very very easily into that category. It's not just the origin story of a nation, though. It's the origin story of of all of the humanity. things of humanity and of the uh, cosmos. Yeah. And so, in that in that sort of walking down that path, Paradise Lost is sort of the epic of epics. Like you can't really you can't take another step back and say, you know, here's here's an even bigger picture of where we came from. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing about the Aeneid and and the Trojans, which to us, you know our modern sensibilities feels like, okay, interesting. I guess that's like someone that we could look at pretty much everyone after the Roman empire saw that as the central thread of history. And so this is one of the things that Peugeot and Roland bring up in their podcast a lot, that there's anthropological evidence of like pretty much everywhere West of Mongolia and North of Ethiopia. You can find people who trace their lineage back to Troy mythologically. Mm-hmm. Like, like someone, I think, in the last fifteen years found people in either Latvia or Lithuania that said, "Yeah, we're the descendants of this family from Troy, who, by whatever means, made it all the way up to the Baltic states and settled there." And so it, there's this sense in which something like the Aeneid and the story of Aeneas fleeing Troy and establishing Rome becomes this sort of sec. I don't want to say secular because that's a really modern thing to think of it. This mythological foundation, as opposed to the the, the by like connected alongside the Bible, this way of realizing who you are, mm-hmm. and so in that sense, it actually plays a similar role to what you were talking about with the primary epics, but in a different way. It's not here's who you are; it's here's where we came from. It's more like linear self definition. Yes. So it it is a way of defining where you are, but it's by means of how you got there. Yes. Not by means of some sort of static staying in place. This is how we've always been. Yes. This is how we have come to be this way. Yes. Which is really interesting for many reasons. One of them being, though, that... uh, And I wish I could could pull where this one came from. I want to say it's Owen Barfield's um, Saving the Appearances, but... The, the contention that it's the first place that you get that sort of arrow of time, that directionality of history, is in the Old Testament. That that is what set, fundamentally set the Hebrew people apart from everyone else. 
in mm. all of history before them. And for me to even say that presupposes the Hebrew view of the world, which is that <laughs> things started and they changed and they're headed somewhere. So you have paradise and eschaton, the eschaton, right? You have the goal. And, and, and that sort of thing that we're living in between those two is really, that's a fundamental part of the epics, I think. They take such a large view of the world maybe the secondary epics, I'll say, they take such a large view of things that you end up being cemented in that. So you have, and the, the Aeneid is set somewhere between the reign of Saturn and the establishment of the eternal kingdom of Rome. Mm-hmm. And then the Pax Romana, the thing that brings about the rule of heaven on earth. With Paradise Lost, right? It's, well, you have Paradise, that's pretty clear. And then the last part of it is looking forward towards the redemption and he even, you know, Milton even goes on to write Paradise Regained. Don't you think you're kind of straining the interpretation on that one? <laughs> <laughs> if it was ever legitimate. What? So, okay. But here's what's so interesting to me is the Divine Comedy is such a... When you, when you start drawing those lines with the epics, the Divine Comedy is so weird because of how personal it is. Mm-hmm. Because it has that same... And I think Dante was a genius on multiple levels, but one of them is his ability to take that sort that epic pattern and write about write himself his own life in that mm-hmm. and so i would when we're looking at that i would say you have the paradise paradisal age for him which is when he was living in the full vision of the love of beatrice and then some there's some fall and we find him in media res lost in the dark woods because he's forgotten beatrice and then it's that vision of beatrice that calls him and he ends up in this sort of personal eschaton, right? Where he's, I mean, he's, he, he ends up in the beatific vision, right? So what's one of the things that's so interesting about that is his ability to walk that whole path in, in one person, in himself. And I don't know. I mean, that, that, that's really interesting. It's, we're talking about the need to know the people in the story too. There's something just deeply personal about the divine comedy. So maybe you want to push back on my argument about it being needing to be cosmological, you know, is the Divine Cosme a, Divine Comedy a cosmic epic, a, a, a well, cosmic it, poem? It literally takes him through his entire universe. Okay, sure. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so on that level, at least, it's cosmic. And I think that that strongly suggests to us that it, on one level, it is a person's life. But yes. yeah. on another level, it's, it, it is the story of humanity. Yes. So that that's really interesting because one of the things that I think Dante does compared to the earlier epics is um, the symbolism that he that he uses is much more self-conscious. So instead of it being about right, the literal founding of Troy or of of Rome, the literal battle outside of Troy, that then is raised this sort of high level when we're talking about it in a poem, he uses individual people to become symbols or images of huge spiritual realities. So even though Dante is just one person, he is traveling through a path that shows you myriad ways in which people can go wrong, basically. Yes. And then go right. Yes. So he is almost taking a tour of... An immense number of people's journeys 
through the same territory. Yeah, it's it's sort of like a it's sort of like a me- it ends up almost being a metaphysical epic, which is a strange. Like, yeah, I, in some sense, it's not about you know the great wars or the great doings. It is about sort of the pattern behind all of it. And so you know the it's funny that there's such an obsession these days with visual media that everything gets tied together. I think of you know the massive snarled knot that is the comic book cinematic universes and how people get this like oh man you know there's five seconds where there's that one character from that other movie and you know that's so interesting and then there's other people that roll their eyes about that and can we not have a standalone you know can we not come up with new stories or standalone things or whatever but you know what anthony trollope did it all first i right i mean dante did it all first so you have all these well you have all these fascinating did he he didn't write other Works of literature with overlapping characters, did he? No, I mean, he did write other stories that have a lot to do with Beatrice and then some other characters in Florence that he then writes into his novel, but he, or into his into his epic, but he takes all sorts of, I mean, basically everything that, had, that he'd ever gotten his hands on mm-hmm. that had been written end up in there. And so he, what's so interesting is you could actually, and I don't know about, by the you maybe lose that thread by Paradise Lost, but you have a neat, you have... Odysseus, who has his exploits in the Odyssey, who then gets transformed into Ulysses, who's basically this really treacherous loser who's been sailing around the eastern Mediterranean before Aeneas comes through. And then he shows up again in Hell in the Divine Comedy. And his story is transformed each time. And so you have him as this sort of trickster who makes it through in the Odyssey into this treacherous man who's willing to abandon all of his shipmates just to get home. I would say he's he's more than that in the Odyssey. Sure. He's Athena's favorite. He's Yes. He's Wily Coyote from well, he's kind of the Gre- many hundred years BC that he's sort of the, exactly. He's sort of the Greek of the Greeks. Yeah. In that sense. Yeah. And then he's all you know, all the negatives of that are really brought out in in the the Aeneid when they're kind of coming along. At one point they find some abandoned former shipmates of Ulysses where they left him on an island. And so then of course Aeneas comes and and rescues them. One of the things that's really interesting is there's this really shocking um, image in the Aeneid where I can't, I can't remember if someone's been murdered. I think he's been murdered and his blood on this Island and his blood has like soaked into this tree. And so when Aeneas comes along, they're going to start a fire and someone breaks the branches off. And instead of sap, his blood is oozing out and he Mm -hmm. speaks out of the tree out of this blood oozing out of the tree, and you think, oh, that's a weird image, and sure enough, it is. Well, Dante comes along later, and in the wood of the suicides in the Inferno, everyone who's committed suicide is a tree that is in the exact same place, and so Virgil tells Aenea, so it tells Dante, break a branch off of there, and then the suicide is, like, speaking out of out of this limb. So there's this real sense in which these images are taken up and, and used over and over, and so then Ulysses shows up amongst the the false counselors, and and... There, the telling that Dante has is Aeneas, or sorry, Ulysses tells his shipmates they're, they've been on the sea for years and years and years and they end up at the Straits of Gibraltar. And Ulysses, instead of taking them home like a, a good leader would, he betrays all of his men in his lust for discovery and gets them all to sail west out into the Atlantic. And then they, they sail and sail and sail and then they see Mount Purgatory. And because no man is, no living man is supposed to see Mount Purgatory except by God's will, a wind comes and sinks their ships after like three months at sea. 
Now, what's fascinating is, is that to me is that the thing that so Dante's Dante the writer is to having Ulysses the Dante and Ulysses tell the story to Virgil and and Dante the character, and he's relaying the the art the argument that he's having with his men on the ship, and he says, "Are we men or beasts? Let's sail west while we have life." Mm-hmm. And if you've ever read the voyages of Don Treader, yes. then you've basically read his speech. Yes, exactly. Men. And so you see the. The whole thing is woven together, and so you know you can roll your eyes about cameos and things being connected. But this is like the, the whole epic project is to weave, is to weave the whole thing together. To weave, but it's it's the biblical corpus, it's the mythological corpus, and it's the historical corpus, which strikes us as very strange as moderns generally. Because, you mean in Dante specifically? In Dante specifically, because we, we we're like no 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 those things don't fit together. Mm-hmm. But he's got them all rubbing shoulders you know, in hell, in purgatory, and up in heaven, and. Um, there's really not those distinctions made there because he's trying to bring all of it in, which Richard Roland and, and, and Peugeot bring up that that was kind of how Europe understood itself was through that, what they call the universal history, where you connect everything back to Troy. Thank you, Aeneid. The Aeneid's very helpful for that. And you connect everything back to the list of nations at the in Genesis after the flood. And so there's this idea of how can we embed ourselves. That's very much like you were saying about the the later epics, we know who we are because of where we came from. And mm-hmm. so that kind of becomes the project of every culture in Europe has that story for yeah. themselves. Here's how we came from Rome. Here's how we came from the Bible. If you read some of the uh, medieval English chronicles, it, it's kind of startling. The, the genealogies will just be going along with you know, all those classic early British sounding names that you can't pronounce and then all of a sudden you're at Noah's sons. <laughs> <laughs> Surely you hit Albion in there somewhere, don't you? Uh I don't know. I just remember suddenly getting t- I think it was Shem. Yeah. All of a sudden it was Shem, yep. the son of Noah. <laughs> yep, and then all the way back to Adam. All the way back to Adam. Yeah. Yep. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, there's there's this desire and and I think that's what Okay, so let, let I want to I want to shift this a little bit and start talking about what it's like to read epics and how you know I have a certain approach to them that I think is it's different from other things that I read and what why why read epics why are why have people read epics and there's this well there, there's a bunch of different ways to start with this one of them is they're they're enormously deep and so I think. I'd be, I'd be curious to hear what you think of, I've, I've been thinking about the depth of a text and it is a, a really like high level definition of depth is, if you will, <laughs> is the ability to continue to bear out new things for you as you read it. So what some people might call richness. Yeah. I would say, well, it's like a deep work. I would say that, yeah, that's or fruitfulness. Or fruitfulness. So I want to. I want to. I want to make. I want to. But I also want to make a further distinction in there and see if you think that if the if those are should be called different things. One is okay. So one is say the Divine Comedy. I can spend a lot of time with the Divine Comedy. I can say study the poetic structure of it. I can study the references to it, and I can realize oh there was more there than I thought. In mm-hmm. that sense, I didn't realize. That he organized purgatory in this way. I didn't see the connection between uh, his ordering of sins and the way St. Thomas Aquinas you know, talks about sin in the Summa. Something like that. 
another one, another way is is I can come back to the Divine Comedy after ten years of living my life, and my life experience makes it a much richer thing. I'm realizing, oh, I didn't realize how true it was. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a like I would almost say that like the first one is ri- like a rich text in in the sense of like a rich tapestry. There's like a lot there. The other one is more like as I come to it with more wisdom, it which I would call it a resonant text, I think. Okay. And resonant in the full okay, musical sense of having richness of sound and it it reverberates I don't want to say echoes because that sounds hollow in some ways actually but it it combines with other other things as well mm, okay and I'm you know to pull the analogy out a little further like it creates new harmonies well when you bring new experience to it so i i a month or two ago i came across a professor who defined symbol like or not defined gave the etymology of symbol and symbolic which has been fascinating to me it's sim meaning together and bolos meaning to throw Mm. so Mm -hmm. a symbol is that things that are thrown together Mm -hmm. and so when you said it 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 ends up matching up with other things it comes together with other things oh that's and then i think about symbol also the the etymological antonym of symbol is diabol, diabolic, where we get diabolic, which is to throw apart. Mm. The diabolic is that which throws apart, and the symbolic is that which throws together. Which there's a lot to consider there. I I really like that though because so when I think about what was it that when I read the Odyssey the first time, it's the clearest with the Odyssey to me, and it's interesting that. Like, I don't really like reading translated poetry in general, but I have no problem reading translated epics. It doesn't bother me at all. Mm-hmm. And I remember after I read the Odyssey, and I, you know, I've got, had visual images of it. And when I thought about the things that happened in the Odyssey, I had no other way of saying it then. The sun was brighter, and the sea was richer in color. There was something about it that like was it had this like hypersaturation of meaning to it to the degree that I went back to the text and said where did that come from mm-hmm. and I couldn't find anything in the descriptions huh and so then so then that connects in my mind Dorothy Sayers has got a fantastic essay on Dante if you want if you're scared of the divine comedy um, and feel intimidated by it. One of the first, well, the first thing I would say is just read it and don't read any footnotes. Just read it all the way through. Um, the other thing that if you can't manage that, then I would say read Dorothy Sayers' essay on it on, called "And Telling You a Story." And she brings up a very interesting thing that she noticed, which is that she had a friend who talks about how she was. Oh, I love Purgatorio. Okay, well, why do you love Purgatorio? Well, it's so colorful, such a rich landscape. Hmm. So they, she and her friend went back and looked, and there's almost no descriptions of the way Purgatorio looks. Mm-hmm. There's almost no visual descriptions. There's a little bit in the veil of the, uh, where the rulers are, the earthly rulers are, and there's like this interesting thing where a snake is coming and it's driven off by angels of the broken sword. There's a little bit of like, there's some beautiful flowers. But it is like a consistent thing for people to read it and just be struck with how 
visually rich and beautiful purgatory is, even though there's like <laughs> no visual descriptions of it. Well, that poem that we started with, the Keats poem, on first looking into Chapman's Homer, later on, he's describing his first experience of reading Homer, at least in this particular translation mm -hmm. by George Chapman. Uh, and he says, uh, I heard Chapman speak out loud and bold, then felt I like some washer of the skies when a new planet swims into his ken. So there's something mm. about that experience that is... <sighs> Broadening doesn't feel like quite the right word, but it does have some new element of experience, it seems, to many, many people. Which is a curious thing, given that one of the, I think, as I understand it, historically characteristic of epics is that they're really, really familiar. Like, if your yes. culture has an epic, then you know it. That's, that is interesting. Well, I, I, again, one of the things that's, to, to, to that point, I've also found that I am always surprised at how much of them I remember. Mm. Obviously, with the exception of the Iliad, which I had a hard time with but i still know a lot about the iliad which is interesting mm -hmm. um and i i mean there's the story was fascinating we had a picture book i don't know if you remember this growing up blacks black, black ships before troy yes that so that's you know the story the story is there but there's some particular staying power of of the epics too that they're, i they're sticky they're sticky yes they're they're very sticky they're deeply sticky that's Sounds unpleasant, but it's actually great. And 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 you almost begin to get the sense why, for instance, Dante is constantly referencing the old the earlier epics. Mm -hmm. Because they did that to him too. And so it, it it's much more like you in it I get the impression that it's something much more like the authors are stepping into this thing rather than, say, writing this thing. It's mm -hmm. much more they've like entered into entered into the stream and and then we as readers get to get to do that as well. I, I mean, it's it's interesting. I don't know if it's the same, but I, I also when I read Paradise Lost, which was that was my the summer after my freshman year of college, and again that's English and it's in blank, blank verse. verse, blank verse. Thank you, and very weird. My understanding is he's trying to imitate the sound of Latin verse mm. in English. But I do remember reading it, and it was one of my first encounters with poetry. Probably a bad idea, but it was great, and I loved it. And But I remember this... But don't try this at home. But don't try this at home, yeah. <laughs> read something else. I was like, I really am interested in like getting to know some poetry. It's like, well, I could read a couple of Hopkins poems. I think I'll write Paradise Lost. <laughs> but coming to this, this, having this impression over and over of, oh, of course he said that word. You know, of course that was the word. And then mm -hmm. I'd go back, and I could never figure out why... It's like, of course, that was the word. Then you end up with these, yeah. I don't, there's there's this interesting interplay that's going on in my mind when I think when I read the epics, which is the whole thing is contained within itself in such a way that I can't say here's here's that phrase. There's not like the pithy phrase, the one thing. It you have it like rises to these particular moments. Say. Um, Satan's monologue outside of the Garden of Eden, right? That's a great one. 
you know, and it mm-hmm. does come to this, you know, you know, I'm going to bring hell whatever, wherever I am, you know, I bring hell inside myself, myself from hell, right? There are great lines like that, but there's... But that's not the point That's not it. the point. It is something about the whole, the whole thing lets you be there and realize that you could be the kind of creature that is capable of looking at earthly paradise and realizing that you would like to pull it apart leaf by leaf because you're just such a bad sport. Mm-hmm. And I, it, I don't, it, I, I, I guess I hold like, there, I have a lot of awe, I think is probably the word that I'd ha- say about mm-hmm. that. And, and it's, a, it's a weird kind of awe because I don't think, oh, I need to go and read Paradise Lost every year. Mm-hmm. I don't read it very often. But, like, it, it's kind of, like, alive inside of me. I'm also thinking about a definition that I read one time. I think it was an Italo Calvino essay on what is a classic. It's one of those things that shows up if you're reading about classical education, <laughs> you're going to find it linked to. Uh-huh. Um, and he offers something like 20 different definitions of a classic. But <laughs> one of the ones that... And they all sort of build on each other. And okay. the idea is that you're getting a... a... An inscape. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> So he's not he's not going to give you a you know a six word definition of a classic, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but assuming that that's where it came from, then he says that a classic is a work that requires a response from you, whether or not you like it. Oh, which is really interesting to me, particularly thinking about the the impulse to respond in later epics to the earlier epics. So, yes. Obviously, Virgil wasn't really buying the the Iliad picture of the Trojan War. Yeah, but he's but he is founding his own epic on that epic. Yes, and responding to it. And again, by rejecting it, basically, but it it called out a response in him. That's interesting. Well, and then Dante. I mean, and then Dante says, like, well, obviously Virgil didn't get it because he's in hell, right? Mm-hmm. So he's he is, he doesn't have special revelation, but he is the best of human reason. And so he wants to bring that in. Like he, he in a literal sense brings Virgil into his story. He says, mm-hmm. come and tell the story with me. Yeah. And, and in a, in a way, like think about, you know, people talk all the time they, about why did Dante put Virgil in there? Why is he his guide? And there's all sorts of things you could get into there with, you know, pagan virtue and all, all sorts of complicated discussions but think about if he had left him out in in that world if if Virgil wasn't in there then there's you know potentially a gaping hole in there because you don't know where to fit these other foundation stories yeah and Dante says firmly this is where they go yeah that I gotta, I gotta, yeah, I've got to chew on that. There's, there's, it, it starts to give me the impression almost of, it's, it's more like a tree than some sort of like creation of man. It's, it's, it's like, there's almost as though like there's a lot less freedom to write an epic. Well, there, it doesn't seem to be that much freedom to write an epic. No, I mean, there's giant gaps between the, the Yeah, <laughs> it's like, here they are here, you know, once every thousand years, once every 800 years, one of these is going to come out because finally everything lined up together to produce this thing. Mm-hmm. 
let me let me let me see let's see if you can see how this are, is related. By the way, we didn't mention before there are some modern epics sometimes called that, and um, they're uh, Wordsworth's Prelude. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think I've got this right. Whitman's Song of Myself, which I have not read. And so, oh. you know, there's some interesting things going on there um, with the epic moving toward... The person. The person. The person, yeah. But, you know, I wonder whether people will look at those in 300 years and say, well, yeah, that the prelude was the next epic after Paradise Lost. Well, Charles or Williams, Charles if Williams. they will disappear into, you know, n- not obscurity like they're going to disappear forever, but they're not going to be epics. Okay, so, uh, okay. Well, I was just going to say, Charles Williams is in his book on the, the figure of Beatrice, which is a great book about Dante. He's constantly putting the Divine Comedy and uh, the Prelude up against each other and comparing them. And, okay. And he thinks that par- the Prelude is... Or would have been if finished the next Divine Comedy, or the the okay. spiritual successor to the Divine Comedy. So, where where nature has some correspondence to Beatrice, in the sense of it's not mm-hmm. it's not the transcendent glory in, in this Florentine woman, but rather in creation. And anyway, so there's yes, it's interesting. Charles Williams is on that line, but okay. So this is going to take a second. I'm reading I'm rereading this book by Daniel Toma on on. It's called Vestige of an Image of Eternity, and it's on. He's trying to reintroduce Aristotelian to mystic thought into the into the into the world, and say this is how we should be interpreting scientific data is through the Aristotelian to mystic framework of thought. Mm-hmm. And one of the points that he's, he makes is that science is fundamentally based on common human experience, and so any aspect of science that denies the validity of common human experience, we have to figure out what that means because it. It can't cut off its own foundation. But there's a line in there that he was talking about where he's he's talking about what's known versus unknown. And this is where, where I think it's really relevant. He said, when we discovered that red light is emitted at, what is it, 507 nanometers of, uh, it, like the wavelength of red light is 507 nanometers. We didn't discover what red light was. We already knew what red light was. And in fact, we couldn't know what, re- what the wavelength was unless we knew what red was. Mm-hmm. The knowledge of red presupposes any scientific knowledge of red. Um, and so I was thinking about that as we we're talking, you're, you're talking about epics. And I was also thinking about, you know, poetry, the idea of poetry. You're talking about what makes a classic. And I was thinking, what's so interesting about what makes a classic is you can come up with all these definitions, but ultimately it comes down to how well does that correspond to what I know to be true, which is a classic. Like, I know that classics exist. Let's see if mm-hmm. I can come up with a definition to match that. But you're not figuring out what a classic is when you define one. You're also not figuring out what an epic is when you define one. You can point to it, and you might draw the circle a little bit differently. But there's, it's just interesting that an epic is a thing that we have a knowledge of, and you could come to different definitions of it, but that doesn't change that we know what it is, and we'll recognize them when we see them. Well, it's sort of a general principle, and this sort of gets into some legal stuff as well, but definitions don't really matter until you get to the edge cases. Yes. Because yeah. in the center, no one asks what the definition is. They already know what it is. Yeah. So, yeah. So then it, it, that, I mean, that it makes me feel real, a lot more comfortable saying, yeah, here's these epics. 
fine, we can contest the edge cases, right? Is this, is the Lord of the Rings an epic? Uh, maybe. But, like, what's weird is that's grounded in the knowledge that, like, we already know, you know, here they are, they're do- and, you know, they're doing these things to us. It, it is interesting to me, too, and I, I don't know, you know, I wish that I had, I, I, I should go and look at this, but, like, sort of the other uses of the word epic. Do, do you know which came first? Did we apply the word epic to this kind of writing? Because we found it epic, and now we also use epic for all these other things, you know, and it's slang, young young person slang. Or did the idea of epic being this great, grand, awe-inspiring thing come out of people writing in that way? I do not know. Uh, gut instinct is that we applied it to the poems first. Yeah. Interesting. So... Let's, let's kind of, as, as we're finishing up, I'm just, I'll just give my recommendation on reading epic poetry, which my first recommendation is do it. My second recommendation is, and this is interesting, and, and maybe you can draw something out of this. I think the best way to read epic poetry is to just read it. It's to not like, try to study it initially, mm-hmm. not try to figure out even really what's going on, but just to like it's something almost like language immersion, which is interesting to me. It's not like studying a textbook. It's not like studying theology or philosophy or history. There's something about get through it as quickly as you can, get as much of it into you as you can. What do you what do you think about that? Like, do you do you think that that has anything to do with what an epic is? Well, um, I think that if you don't do it like that, then you're very unlikely to actually make it all the way through. <laughs> uh, well, I, one of the things that I think comes out in that is that epics are holes, like with a W. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. you don't actually know the epic until you've read the whole thing. And I don't mean like the, if you skip a book in the middle of the Odyssey that you're going to lose the whole experience. But I do mean that they, you know, they progress. And the Iliad doesn't end in the same place that it started. And if you don't know how it ends, then you don't know what the significance of the beginning is. Yeah. And that movement, I think, from beginning to end is vital to the epic because it's not... It's not a snapshot. Yeah. That reminds me of, I don't, I don't know if you remember talking about this, but there's a an article that we came across in, the, in our family several years ago about a retired fireman who decided he was going to memorize as much of Paradise Lost as he could. You remember this? Uh, I don't, Average. I didn't remember that he was a retired fireman, but I do remember somebody memorizing all of Paradise Lost. Well, the, the point was that he was just, you know, an everyman. He was he was anyone, mm-hmm. and so I think he did it while he was walking on the treadmill for multiple hours a day. But um, the thing that he said was that having memorized it, it was like he had a cathedral in his head that he could walk through. Mm. Which, yeah, that's the right exactly. That's the response that I that I have. I take to it too. I so I actually really like your your point about them being a whole because. Maybe that's part of what is so powerful about them is that they force us to realize 
that in some sense, everything that we're in is part of a whole. And so it takes our eyes up from here. I am in this one place at this one time. And there's actually two quotes that I can think of from Dante that I can't quote, but I could give you from the divine comedy where he talks about one of them is in, uh, the, in the circle of purgatory where there, I believe it's envy and no, it's, it's greed and they're, they're, they're staked face down on the ground so they can't look up at heaven. That's their purgation. So mm-hmm. they don't get to look at the stars. And he has this inviction against them saying, you know, how can you not turn your eyes to heaven to see, you know, these wondrous, these wondrous marvels that God has caused to spin out across the universe. And that's sort of like the anti-epic right there is the person who's staked out with their face to the ground and all they can see is the dirt. Mm-hmm. Um, which reminds me of, so I have a particular affection in my heart for Job and Beowulf. Job, I'm I'm going to give the honorary title of the epic, and and Beowulf, they're 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 close cousins in my mind, and and on the Beowulf side, I all the credit goes to Tolkien's interpretation and the monsters and the critics, where he brings out that the weird time structure of it is is not an accident it's not a say a crudity of it of the writing but actually a piece of masterwork that you would have beowulf in his prime slaying the slaying the monsters and bringing about the the golden day of the danes is it the danes or is he a dane been too long he brings about the golden age and there's peace and the the drinking halls and its glory and then you don't get any of that. You just go from him slaying Grendel's mother straight to decrepit Beowulf, you know, hobbling out of his, out of his, off his throne with no one beside him to go fight the dragon. And yes, he kills the dragon, but he's slain in the same, at the same time. And that and Job, because both of those, both of those stories have this unusual bookend structure where what they're doing is they're taking, they, they start you somewhere and they put you all the way at the end somewhere. And they make you look at the fact that pretty much all of our life is somewhere right in the middle. Mm-hmm. And, and you can't get away from it. Job is, it, they're, they're sort of the yin and yang of each other narratively. Because Job is, there's almost nothing on the bookends. They're just like bare minimum. Here it is. We get you going. And then the whole thing is, we're sitting in, sitting in the middle of Job's destitution and trying to figure out what happened. And the whole point is that you shouldn't figure out what happened. You mm-hmm. should wait and Beowulf is kind of the opposite because Beowulf is in his glory. And it, but it ultimately doesn't matter. They can rip Grendel apart, but with his bare hands and slay Grendel's mother down in the bog in her, in her bog lair, because man apart from God grows old and dies. The dragons come and the darkness returns. And, and so they're like the shadow and the light of each other in some sense, because Job, he's destitute. And then there's all this arguing about why that happens. And he's raised up to glory. Um, and re- and he's restored, and those are sort of the two to, to in my in my own head. Those are the two things that, like you kind of have to live with those all the time. That that is your life is somewhere in the middle of Job, and it's somewhere in the middle of Beowulf at the same time. Sometimes it's more Job, and sometimes it's more <laughs> Beowulf. Um, but I think when you when you when you read them, and you and you sit with it. You don't read it as something to extract stuff from. 
You don't read it as, I mean, sure, you can learn a lot historically and, and poetically and all that's great. But when it's something that you, you have the humility to come and live inside of, I think it gives you a chance to have a wisdom that exceeds one human life or even a hundred human lifetimes. And um, you get to see a story that's bigger than yourself and realize that you're part of it. Well, you obviously intended that as the perfect wrap-up, so we'll end there. 